Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 14. She stands up. I accept your challenge, Keltham. I have some logic homework, and if I'm not going to have time for it tonight, I'd better do it now. Can't have anyone thinking I only get good scores because I'm sleeping with my teacher. Who would possibly design an institution where the same people responsible for teaching were responsible for scoring the learning metrics? That's like an electrical diagram with the world's most obvious short circuit. Do people do that sort of thing here? Possible priority within the basic stuff? Explain how education works literally at all. He is not going to ask any of that right now. He needs to come up with a witty, romantic reply. No, I'm far too lawful for such a thing, by local standards. Just don't expect me to be lawful at all times. What's chaotic in Dothy Lawn? Hair pulling? Surprises. Shit, now he's got to come up with something to back that up. Well, he's got time. This is going to be so much fun if it doesn't get her killed. She leaves the room to do her logic homework, immediately go invisible, and poke her head back in just for a minute. Keltham will be eating more of his food and wearing the fixed look of concentration of somebody trying to figure out which very standard dath Alani sex techniques in his very standard repertoire, that he did not expand much because he had other life priorities, would be able to cash in that surprises promissory note. An obvious place to start would be to figure out which bits of standard technique would have no corollary inside a mess like Galarian, while still being executable by him. Actually, that does narrow down the search a whole lot. A vibrator would probably surprise Carissa, but, of course, he doesn't have access to a vibrator. Okay, if he narrows it down from that angle, there's an obvious possible surprise to try. Keltham is also trying to figure out what Carissa could have possibly meant by hair-pulling. If he just straightforwardly visualizes somebody pulling on his hair, it could be a moment of spontaneously passionate embrace. But mostly, it would just yank his head back. And if it was hard enough to hurt, it would hurt. Though oddly enough, when Keltham tries to visualize the case where Carissa could have meant him pulling her hair, if she hadn't mentioned that in a sexual context, his unrevised first guess would be that it should just make her say ouch. But when he visualizes that producing a sexual response from her instead, that seems to be booping on some internal sexual part of him that hasn't been booped before. Yeah, he's probably going to lose this contest. That's what happens when you challenge somebody older and more experienced. It doesn't mean he's going to lose without dignity. Keltham eats some more of his food, with the absorbed look of a horny teenaged male who knows he's in over his head, and who is going to swim that fucking pool anyways. Okay, she is not going to let this distract her from her main priority here, which is becoming a perfect devil before she's even dead. This is actually, if you think about it, not a distraction from that goal, because the closer she is with Keltham, the more incredibly annoying and difficult it would be to execute her for heresy. She turns and leaves the room again, and this time actually tries studying her logic homework. Keltham will eventually turn his thoughts back to further lesson plans, if nobody has interrupted him yet. He does not conceptualize himself as a man too thirsty to get important work done. He makes a mental note about sending a respectfully brief letter to Lirilatha, mentioning his concern about lowering child mortality in a way that might run ahead of agriculture. And if that's safe to discuss with chelish humans Y and N, 
along with a numerical-scale brief question asking whether Keltham should be sending fewer or more letters like that in the future. 2-1-0-1-2. And a mental note to ask about getting one of Irori's books, on the remote chance that it contains a ton of useful exercises for making people less imperfect. He doesn't think a handy guidebook like that should be a thing that already existed here, given that Galarian is still Galarian. But it sounds worth checking. Maybe they only got halfway, and Keltham can provide the other half. Oh, he should have asked whether Irori counted as neutral evil, or what exactly. Keltham still isn't sure he has this alignment thing down at all. No one interrupts him for the rest of lunch, though several girls look like they're agonizing over whether to. Then Keltham shall eventually make his way over to the harem tables, once they look to be past their hypothetical initial food rush, and once he himself has eaten enough food to no longer feel imminently hungry, plus 20% in case the unfamiliar flavors are causing him to underestimate energy demands or he's overestimating later food availability. His set point is stable, and if he accidentally takes in excess food, it's not going to change anything long-term, obviously. Hey. Want to tell me about anything I'm doing wrong as a teacher? It's been a while since I was an older kid teaching younger kids, and this time I don't have a watcher backing me up. Plus, I'm in another plane, so I'm not going to be surprised if you've got complaints. Having a date with Carissa makes it easier to go talk to the research harem about other stuff. They're not going to be trying to grab him for this night. Probably. They look baffled by this question. I'm not very clear on how we are evaluated, Meritzel offers after a moment of silence. That's very legitimate, but not one I can solve in five minutes. Sorry. I don't have all the measuring instruments we'd have at home. I can't just go to the store and buy standard tests for how you're doing at learning predicate logic or calculus, and if I'm going to have to improvise that, I'd better not do it right here on the spot. Success metrics are hugely important on any operation. I don't dare half-ass them. I can't even promise that I'll manage to find somebody other than myself to evaluate all aspects of your short-term performance, separately from my being the one who teaches you, even though in Dat Ilan we'd think it was hugely stupid to have the teacher be the student evaluator. Like, general issues of lawfulness aside, we'd usually consider it to be a blatantly obvious matter of optimal institutional design, that there be a separate student evaluator that students would theoretically have to sleep with in order to obtain better grades, who's not the same person responsible for teaching the students in the first place. And we'd also be looking for forms of evaluation that were easy for a higher watcher to spot-check and catch out any lower watchers who'd done it incorrectly, for sexual reasons or otherwise. I can't promise you any of that. It may not even end up being the practical priority. And I ask for your understanding and forbearance about that, given the incredibly weird circumstances. Though, I mean, in the long term, there's an obvious team metric where we look at the gross domestic product of Cheliacs and Galarian and see if we pushed it above trend, or measure how much money we made by selling better metals and agricultural implements. Excited giggles. That's fine, Meritzel says. Anyway, if you're sleeping with everybody, then there's no question of it affecting anyone's grades unfairly. Oh, come on, you're not going to all have the same skills at sex. Keltum reflexively points out the obvious invalidity in this argument before his central monitoring loop has had even the slightest chance to think about it at all. Meritzel seems to think this a completely reasonable response. I don't think the mechanism by which grades get altered by sleeping with the teacher is bias. I think it's inducement. 
So as long as you think everyone's doing their best, there's no incentive to toy with their grades, even if some people have a better best. She nibbles her lower lip. Even though some people have a better best. To be clear, I think we'd want to rigorously separate sexual performance from research performance and not get those confused into one metric over a person. I'd frankly expect both you and the Chelish government to be pissed about the performance hit to the world economy if I got confused that way. That said, it'd be conventional practice in Dathilan to pay people proportionally to their apparent output, not whether people are doing their best. It's a lot easier to measure how well somebody is doing than to know whether they're really doing their best. And there's an implied incentive that seems really awful to me for people to be weaker, for their best to be worse, if you pay them to do their best. Even very good people in Dathilan wouldn't do that. It's not lawful. That's how Cheliax does punishments, says Asmodia. I have never heard it applied to sexual favors except informally because you can only get anywhere if you have something to offer. But probably that is because we are insufficiently lawful and haven't thought it through properly. People mostly don't actually sleep with their instructors for better grades, Gregoria clarifies. Probably if it were widespread, people would have noticed how to do it lawfully, even here. With punishments, though, there's some sense in scaling... Like, you want to evaluate second years against second years, not second years against fifth years, in deciding who is underperforming because it's just not informative if your process concludes that all the second years are underperforming. Okay. Yeah, that's been puzzling me for a while. The books referred to it, too. Like there was this one book supposedly by a magic instructor who spends the first chapter telling you about what a great magic instructor he is, where he mentions punishing students at the end of the day so it won't interrupt their learning. If that was literally true, and not a weird collection of lies, I'm so confused about this for multiple reasons that I don't even know where to start asking. If I'm like, hey, give me your shoes for 20 silver pieces, and you value your shoes less than that, it makes sense to give me your shoes. If instead I'm like, hey, give me your shoes or I'll put you in an arm lock and break your arm, and you actually do that because the value of the shoes is less to you than the value of the unbroken arm, then the fact that you reacted that way is the reason why I made the threat in the first place, right? I mean, assuming I'm the sort of ideal entity who doesn't have any altruism or any inherent desire to behave in a coordinated way with others, if I can go around collecting everyone's shoes by threatening to break their arms, why wouldn't I just go collect all their shoes? So in the, they don't have the word counterfactual, lovely, unreal branch of reality where I threaten to break your arm, you fight and punch me in the face and don't give me your shoes, even though it costs you a broken arm. And since I know that's how it will go, I don't actually threaten to break your arm, and the branch of reality stays unreal. I mean, I can guess that you aren't trained in ways of thinking about real and unreal branches of reality and playing complex strategies over them. But I would have thought it would be more like human instinct, to punch somebody in the face if they threaten to break your arm, if you don't give them your shoes. I mean, we get training, that's about how we have instincts like that and we need to carefully refine them so they actually lead to optimal, real-world outcomes. And then here it sounds like there is a whole lot more of people punching each other in reality. And then you've got students supposedly paying somebody to punch them in the face, and that I just do not get at all. The students are confused. The soul learns through incentives, Asmodia says after a while. Incentives like... If I do this thing, it works out nicely for me and I get a glow of satisfaction. But also incentives like, 
If I fuck this up, it'll hurt. The way to teach children not to touch a hot stove is to let them once and then they'll know. Because the soul is wired to understand feedback from pain faster than it understands feedback from anything else. I am aware you may not have souls in Dathilan, and I don't know if this still applies without them. No magical healing. We try to avoid children touching hot stoves once. I think if Dathilan could get faster learning by... No, that's not valid reasoning on my part. They could attach enough disutility to the student's experience of pain that they still wouldn't do it, so it's not much evidence that they don't do it already. I guess I'm still skeptical that you're describing a system that's actually locally optimal and that people aren't messing up. Because if you get an electrical shock for a wrong math answer, that's a kind of pain we could inflict without lasting injury. If we wanted to go that route, then you don't just learn not to answer math problems wrongly. I'd expect you to also learn not to answer math problems and not to go to classes in some deep part of you that you can't consciously override. And it sounded like, from something Carissa mentioned earlier, people end up afraid to point out what looks like an error by the teacher, because if they're wrong about that, they might get pain inflicted on them. That sounds like exactly the kind of incredibly obvious failure mode I'd expect to develop if somebody had the bright idea of trying to use pain to teach things, but you were also so bad at institutional design that students could get better grades by sleeping with the teacher. I would have been a lot less cooperative with the older kids teaching me if I'd been getting punched by them for errors instead of paid by my parents for successes. You definitely have to have the punishments arranged competently by people who know how to do it, Asmodia says. It sounds like the teacher in the book you read was arguing that the end of the day is a better timing, in order to get the benefits without creating side incentives you don't want, though in practice I don't think it's a very big problem. Certainly there are not students who are uncooperative, so we can't be doing whatever would have caused you to be uncooperative. I do not understand how the system you describe is in equilibrium, but that can probably wait for another day. Are you going to be okay if my teaching style is built entirely out of rewards for success instead of punishments for failure? Because I do not know how to do punishments competently. We were selected for this because we're top students. We can handle weird or limited incentives. And if we want someone to whip us to help a lesson sink in, we can arrange that outside of class, Pilar says with a glance at Paxti. Something inside him has an unusual feeling about that, but Keltham does not know what it is, and it's not his priority right now. I should ask this explicitly. Are you using mind-affecting spells to put yourself in an optimal state for learning? It looked to me like during the whole lesson, you only varied between the states of attentiveness, enthusiasm, and great enthusiasm, even when I said things that I would have expected to put somebody into an angrier state if they hadn't been explicitly trained in dignity. Not saying you're doing anything wrong there, it just seems like the sort of thing a teacher should know about. I think Cheliax also conducts training in dignity, says Asmodia. We weren't using magic. At least, I wasn't. A chorus of other I wasn'ts. Well, that's good. The dignity training part, I mean. Though I should check. How does the word dignity translate to you? What's some concrete examples of dignity? Keltham has just tried a mental experiment of his own and found that there are at least three different baseline terms that all mentally translate to him as the Taldane word, dignity. Why is even lunchtime full of impossible high-stakes tests? Dignity is remaining composed when situations are frustrating or frightening and staying focused on the situation and not on your emotions. 
Dignity is conducting yourself like a person other people can rely on to be serious, not reacting childishly to things, not needing people to accommodate your human weaknesses. Dignity is carrying yourself like you're important. All right. I think I might have managed to put my finger on a quiet, nagging doubt I had before, Keltham says, totally oblivious to any signs of inner panic this might be producing, unless somebody actually shows it to him. There's at least three different baseline words that translate as dignity in this language, but the one I had in mind is not getting angry at people for behaving the way they're supposed to, or in ways they have a right to do, not showing outward anger, not letting yourself react inwardly in a way that could lead you to subconsciously lower their grades later, or the equivalent of that. It's the quality that you display to others so that they'll know it's safe to turn you down for sex, even though you're acting as a manager. And if you weren't confident you'd shown that much dignity, you'd be afraid to invite them for sex. Dignity, in the case of my relation to students as a teacher, means that if I make my own mistake on the whiteboard and you point it out, I don't even internally blame you for my mistake and give you a bad performance review later. Nobody who lacked that kind of dignity would be tapped to give performance reviews. Very few higher managers would be stupid enough to promote a manager who was visibly bad enough at dignity that employees would be afraid to tell them what they were doing wrong. We go through training to avoid that being true of us even subconsciously, where our conscious minds wouldn't notice. If you're not in a state of fixed enthusiasm produced by mind-affecting spells, then it's very odd if I just started up teaching again after not doing that for years in another dimension, across an unknown huge cultural gap in a non-native language that's translated in my mind by spell and didn't make any mistakes. I was wordlessly expecting somebody in the class to go wrong. That's not how you teach Chellish students. And that never happened. It might locally pain me some tiny bit to be told that, but it's the kind of hurt that's intrinsic to learning not to do something again. Not what I'd classify as the Dath Elani word that translates as punishment in the lawful sense of that. The kind of hurt where you're deliberately making it worse because you're trying to influence my behavior by imposing costs on me. So if my concept of dignity is all about thinking and acting in a way that makes there be negligible real social disincentives for you to inform me about my mistakes, even if I didn't ask, and your version of dignity is about always looking cheerful and enthusiastic, and not giving me any visible sign that I'm making mistakes, unless I ask. There might have been an intercultural problem. The students still do not visibly display any distress, although maybe they're supposed to? This is such an unfair test. I wouldn't mind telling you if I think of something you're doing wrong, Meritzel says after a moment, somewhat truthfully. But no one in Cheliacs is going to tell you by being visibly distressed or confused. That's not how people in Cheliacs communicate things, so you won't want to read anything into that. We are competent to tell you with words. That's not undignified. Yeah, so asking in words now, were there any memorable points in class where, if I'd remembered to ask, you would have told me I was teaching suboptimally, even though nobody was showing visible signs of confusion or distress? Meritzel will keep going with this, even though it might be a disaster. Well, you were teaching really differently from how it's done in Cheliacs, and if a Chelish teacher were teaching that way, I would think they weren't very good, since it involved so much being confused. But you said you were doing that on purpose, and that it's part of all the techniques we're supposed to be learning. 
I sure was trying to bewilder you on purpose for reasons. I was probably also trying harder and harder to bewilder you because you never showed any overt emotional signs of being bewildered. I'm actually running into a small stumbling block about trying to explain mentally why it's better to give wrong answers than no answers. It feels too obvious to explain. I mean, I vaguely remember being told about experiments where, if you don't do that, people sort of revise history inside their own heads and aren't aware of the processes inside themselves that would have produced the previous wrong or suboptimal answer. If you don't make people notice they're confused, they'll go back and revise history and think that the way they already thought would have handled the questions perfectly fine. Well, you definitely succeeded at being confusing. Do Chelish teachers just not ask questions unless you already know how to answer? Not usually. If a question is asked, that suggests you are supposed to be competent to answer it. Unless I am severely misunderstanding something, that sounds like a truly basic mistake that could be crippling your entire process of education, especially of the people who are supposed to be producing intense thought-based products like research. The most important hidden orders begin as questions you don't know. The real answers are things you haven't seen that may resemble nothing you've seen before. They may require new instruments and new kinds of thinking to figure out. Dathilani are trained from childhood to answer questions they have no idea how to answer, and on a really fundamental level, that is why that civilization now knows any stuff. The students blink at him. That seems important, Asmodia ventures after a minute. It might only work for smart people, though. No kidding. Dathilan has enough scale, a billion people slightly less, that it can adapt different educational processes for different levels of intelligence. If somebody took an educational system that was implicitly designed for average intelligence in this world, and then just tried to throw a bunch of smarter kids through the same system, I'm wondering if I should maybe be giving an early basics talk on, like, how to teach and learn at all. Or if I should be leading by example there for a while, before presuming to write up how anything should work in Cheliacs. My understanding, says Meritzel, is that if we turn out well, they'll adopt it more widely, and if we turn out terribly, then they won't. I think if we start to get good results early, they should figure out 20 variations on education and test those early. Human capital accumulation is one of the classic examples of an input to the total production cycle that takes a long, linear time and can't be shortened by throwing more money at it. But sure, I can wait to argue that part with governance for another week. Uh, I'm sorry, it's just occurred to me that it's lunchtime, we're talking about work things, and I need to ask out loud in words if you'd rather be talking about... It's not ostriches, but for some weird reason my brain is repeatedly having this hiccup where it thinks that the sport fights are with ostriches instead of whatever it actually is. Probably we could get people to fight ostriches if you want. Bullfights are traditional. We usually work during lunch at school. Recreation is for holy days. I'm sorry again. I couldn't actually focus on this without more effort than I think wise. My brain is repeatedly calling attention to the point that this has been your first formal learning experience with structural uncertainty. Was it fun? Awful? Fun awful? I can go away if you don't want to think about work until we resume, but it doesn't sound like that's your usual rule. It was really interesting. I think I learned a lot. I'm worried it will have bad side effects, but the direct effects didn't seem bad. Some of the warnings Lorelatha gave him make more sense now, unfortunately, which he maybe should have expected from talking to a very serious person. 
Her warnings suddenly sound much more like things that could actually happen instead of far-flung failure modes. A lot of the warnings I got back as a kid suddenly seem a lot more like they might be necessary and important if somebody didn't have a lot of actual experience with what it's like to usefully think weird and unusual thoughts pointing in odd directions. Look, there's a very basic warning, which first gets told in the form of a joke, about a patient who goes to the doctor complaining that his arm starts to hurt if he folds it all the way behind his back, and the doctor says, Well, first of all, if it hurts, stop doing it. If you start feeling like it is a perfectly logical and inevitable conclusion from the law, I've taught that you need to destroy this universe. Talk to me, talk to somebody who works fairly directly for Asmodeus, and first of all, stop twisting up like that. Just literally pause until you've talked to somebody, because that is not supposed to be an inevitable conclusion from Dathilani premises. Reasoning under structural uncertainty is legit harder and easier to screw up than reasoning when you already know exactly how you're supposed to think, which is boringly easy by comparison. You're going to suck at it for a while. If you arrive at the necessary truth that you must fling yourself into the sea, don't. The girls nod fervently. I need to think. I may not need to think more than you need to have urgent questions answered, so interrupt me if it's important, but I need to think. It's... I wondered how Galarian managed to be screwed up when it had very serious lawful devils and frigging gods, but now I'm visualizing. Dathilan has put this massive effort by a lot of people with very high-measured intelligence into optimizing everything important, which I don't think I really appreciated before. And in this world, somebody put the children's lessons together in a way where the person teaching them is also responsible for measuring the results. And nobody else is checking on their measurements. And all of the questions are supposed to be things the children have already been taught how to answer. And the regional numbers of children are too small, and travel is too expensive, to sort each lesson by current knowledge and velocity of learning. So the people I consider to be of average intelligence are just being thrown into a scaled-up version of whatever has to teach people much dumber than them how to do ultra-basic algebra. And I'm realizing that every single aspect of Galarian must be that screwed up simultaneously. Keltham is visualizing what Luralatha's day must be like. She probably walked straight out of this villa and teleported directly to somewhere else, where she had to stop somebody from being a massive idiot and plugging all the outputs of the iron factories back into their inputs, and then teleported again, and then again. And does her species even get to sleep? And how many of her are there in all of Cheliac's? 3. She can't fix things on a deep level because the human problems aren't her problems. She doesn't know how to tell people to do it systematically better, because the current educational system wouldn't hurt her the same way, and Keltham's god isn't talking to him, and there's some massive communication barrier that made it easier for Asmodeus to point vaguely in Keltham's direction than to give detailed instructions to anyone, and this whole situation is so much more messed up than he previously realized. You're really going to hate all the other countries in the world, says Asmodea. Carissa and Luraletha both warn me. Keltham waits to see if anyone has anything urgent to add to that, and then goes off to think by himself. A few seconds later, he comes back and asks somebody to actually tell him when his stated time for lunch is over, because he doesn't have a wristwatch anymore. He gets several volunteers to get him when it's time, Keltham thinks. He also takes small bits of additional food and arranges them in weird patterns on his plate without eating them, so he has something to distract his brain when it overheats. Keltham does not think that food is supposed to be valuable, particularly not food on this level of elaboration. Pros. If this hypothesis is correct, 
there will be lots of things that Keltham can very, very easily say how to improve. Cons Many Dathilani solutions will not work out of the box because they rely on other stuff already working. Three girls come over to get him at once when it's the end of lunchtime. Keltham has managed to rally himself by this point. Fine. So instead of having the metaphorical opportunity to take over a company in a green field with no competition, he has the metaphorical opportunity to take over a company, every single part of which is simultaneously wrong, in a green field with no competition. So? He just has to repair enough things, and then they'll work. What's he going to do? Give up on that without trying? No. Is he going to complain when his immediate prospects include a date with Carissa tonight and he's been assigned a research harem? More no. All of his no. What kind of reply would that be to Chelish governance providing him with large opportunities? He just has to rise to the challenge, make all the money, fuck all the women, and fix all of the universe's deficiencies. All that's changed is that he now has some idea of the actual scope of the problem. Off to the library again he goes. Keltham continues to have no idea of the actual scope of the problem. The horrifying planet-wide disaster of universally awful institutional design that Keltham is currently envisioning is somewhere around 1% as dysfunctional as, say, an alternate prime material with a roughly equivalent tech level to Dath Elan's but the modal social outcome for that. He continues to not be mentally on the same page as Galarian, nor, indeed, the same book, same language, same library, same city, same planet, or same laws of physics as Galarian. If you wish to support the production of this AI-voiced reading of Plane Crash, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated. <laughs>